Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have three brand new movies to review for you. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a brand new comedy that was released on Netflix on April 9th, 2021, and that movie is Thunder Force. And Thunder Force stars Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer, one Academy Award um, winner and the other Academy Award nominee two times. And it is directed by Melissa McCarthy's husband, Ben Falcone, who is a good actor in his own right. But his collaborations between himself and Melissa McCarthy, where he's the director and she's the lead actress, have been somewhat mixed over the last couple of years. Melissa McCarthy, of course, became an A-lister thanks to the hilarious movie Bridesmaids, which, if you can believe it, is 10 years old as of now. And his, his movies he's collaborated with, with Melissa McCarthy, have been, as I said, uh, here or there critically. The first movie with which they collaborated, which was actually Ben Falcone's directorial debut, was Tammy, which I kind of liked. I think people were turned off by this movie because Melissa McCarthy played someone who was the exact opposite of the woman she played in Bridesmaids. Uh, for instance, she was lower class. She blamed the whole world on her problems, which again, exact opposite of Bridesmaids. But I liked it for what it was, and I could I could definitely tell what the movie was trying to do. The movie that came after that was The Boss, which I don't think was particularly well-received critically, but I liked it. I thought Melissa McCarthy was very funny in that movie. After that came 2018's Life of the Party, which was so poorly received that Melissa McCarthy was nominated for Worst Actress in a Leading Role at the Razzies for that movie and The Happy Time Murders. And I think people were being way too hard on The Happy Time Murders. Sure, it wasn't a perfect movie, and it could have been a lot better than it ultimately was, but the faults of that movie were not Melissa McCarthy's fault. So I think she kind of took the bullet for that. And the last movie that Ben Falcone and Melissa McCarthy collaborated upon was a movie called Super Intelligence, which I haven't actually seen. It's a movie that stars, of course, Melissa McCarthy, as I said, as well as Bobby Cannavale and James Corden, amongst other people. It actually came out Thanksgiving 2020 and is now available for streaming on HBO Max. I was not actually aware of that before I saw the film. So I do think that getting back to the movie Thunder Force... It is, I think, the best collaboration between Ben Falcone as a director and Melissa McCarthy as a lead actress, but it still has some very evident flaws. And let me just summarize to you what this movie is about. It takes place in Chicago, in a world where supervillains are commonplace, and two estranged childhood best friends... um, who are both Chicago natives. There's Lydia, who's played by Melissa McCarthy, and Emily, who's played by Octavia Spencer, reunite after one devises a treatment that gives them powers to protect their city. And Melissa McCarthy is more of the rebel of the two, whereas Octavia Spencer is 
the brains. So Melissa McCarthy is set up as the funny woman and Octavia Spencer as the straight woman. And one of the flaws of, of this film is that Octavia Spencer is not only a great actress, but she also is very funny. And I, I think that this movie would have worked better if she had been given more funny lines. But with that said, I did actually like how Melissa McCarthy reluctantly becomes a superhero after getting injected with this serum that Octavia Spencer's character created. And the two of them join forces, Lydia, Melissa McCarthy's character with super strength, and Emily, Octavia Spencer's character with invisibility, and fight these real-life, larger-than-life supervillains, including a woman named Palm Clementieff, who plays someone only known as Laser, and also the mayor of Chicago, who's known in nickname as the King, who's played by Bobby Cannavale. His supervillain strength is not particularly um, well-defined, and maybe it should have been, but he, he still actually is pretty good as a villain. I didn't quite understand the casting of Jason Bateman as a villain who's actually an underling of the king who's known as the Crab. And what is the Crab's superpower? He doesn't really have one. He just has arms that look like crabs, or rather, arms that look like crab legs, I should say. Yeah, if he had arms that look like crabs, then that would be, and I do mean the animal, not the uh, STI. I, I went a little too far there. But anyway, yeah, he'd be a lot weirder. But I can't really see Jason Bateman as one of those supervillains. And he usually plays a very smart guy. And in this movie, he does some very stupid things. For instance, when we're introduced to him, he and some other people are hijacking a convenience store. But why would somebody who works for the mayor, uh, as corrupt as he might be, be robbing a convenience store of all things. Wouldn't they be better, you know, robbing a bank, for instance? Isn't that more ambitious? Wouldn't Jason Bateman be smarter enough to rob a bank or some kind of vault as opposed to something that any hoodlum with a gun could rob on their own time and do? That's my take on it. But the movie was, I think, lacking in terms of story. And it really could have been a lot more elaborate. And, and there are some twists, like, for instance, there's somebody who works under Octavia Spencer who's eventually revealed to be an accomplice of the villains. And I could totally see that coming about halfway through the film. There's also one scene where another character presumes, or maybe rather assumes incorrectly, that Octavia Spencer and Melissa McCarthy's characters are not friends, they're lesbian lovers. And I thought that was a, digging a little too low, and it came off as unintentionally homophobic in a way that doesn't work particularly well in 2021. I thought the scenes that did work were when Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer were fighting crime, but the scenes that didn't work were when Melissa McCarthy was given all the funny lines and Octavia Spencer were given next to none. And there were also some very questionable 
sequences, like when Melissa McCarthy compares Octavia Spencer's character's daughter, who's played by a lovely young actress by the name of Tracy Mosby, to Steve Urkel. And Tracy, be, uh, rather the character played by Taylor Mosby, who is Generation Z, doesn't know who Urkel is. And Melissa McCarthy does an imitation of Steve Urkel that is A, really bad, and B, goes on for way too long. I think Melissa McCarthy says, did I do that? Which is one of Steve Urkel's catchphrases, if you remember Family Matters, about seven or eight times. And I think by the fifth time I was covering my face going, okay, can we move on, please? There are other moments where Melissa McCarthy kind of goes off script like that. And rather than saying something clever, she kind of says the same tired thing over and over again. And there's also an unnecessary love story or sequence between Jason Bateman's character, the crab and Melissa McCarthy's character, Lydia, that again, there's this fantasy sequence that goes on for way too long. So Thunder Force is a bit of a disappointment. I don't think this is a career ender for Melissa McCarthy or Octavia Spencer, but I do come to the conclusion after seeing four movies starring Melissa McCarthy and directed by Ben Falcone that they're probably better off either working apart or working in a movie that Ben Falcone doesn't direct, or at least Ben Falcone could direct another comedy that does not star Melissa McCarthy because the two of them can't quite make a a good on uh, on screen product. I'm I hope their uh marriage is good. I hope they stay together. It would actually break my heart really if they divorced or did something like that. But I do think that Melissa McCarthy works better without Ben Falcone's direction. And I'm not sure if that's her fault or if it's Ben Falcone's fault, but Thunder Force could have been a much better buddy comedy if Melissa McCarthy was given fewer funny parts and Octavia Spencer could have been more of the deadpan part. Instead, she just plays a straight woman, and that doesn't really work well for the dynamic between the two actors, who, by the way, are excellent actresses, but they just don't mesh as well in this film as they should. So Thunder Force gets my rating of a strikeout. It's not a terrible film, and it's definitely not the worst film that Melissa McCarthy and Ben Falcone have made together, but it is really discouraging to see Ben Falcone in the director's chair and Melissa McCarthy uh, getting top billing, and it just doesn't work between the two of them in presumably the fifth movie they've done together, but the fourth movie in which I've seen them. And that's really too bad because both of them, Ben Falcone and Melissa McCarthy, are very funny. They had one or two scenes together in Bridesmaids in which they were both hilarious. But why the directing and acting combo doesn't work, I don't really know. All I know is that it really doesn't.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Stars Fell on Alabama. This is a movie that premiered on Hulu on April 9th, 2021, but it is not actually a Hulu original. I don't know when movies premiere on streaming platforms like Netflix or Hulu and they come out in 2021, yet they're not original Netflix or Hulu, respectively, original films. I don't know if... I I don't know how that works, but it's some sort of contractual thing. But Stars Fell in Alabama is a romantic comedy very similar to one you'd find on Lifetime or the Hallmark Channel. And I do say Lifetime because Lifetime Television for Women was, for years, um, reputed to have some of these bland romantic comedies. I don't know if Lifetime has completely abandoned those kind of movies or not yet. I think nowadays they go a little bit more for murder mysteries, which still appeal to women because, well, (laughs) women like murder mysteries too, I guess. But I, I still think they have some sort of investment in these kinds of romantic comedies. But you'd be more pressed to find a comedy like Stars Fell in Alabama on the Hallmark Channel. And that gives you somewhat of an idea of what kind of movie this is. So Stars Fell in Alabama is about a Hollywood agent whose name is Bryce Dixon, and his friends call him Dixie, or at least the ones from his hometown in Alabama. He's played by a young actor by the name of James Maslow, and he returns to his Alabama hometown for a 15-year high school reunion. His old schoolmates think he's dating and bringing a famous movie star with him, and he asks a cute client for a favor. That cute client is an up-and-coming actress by the name of Madison Bell, and she's played by a very beautiful young woman by the name of Ciara Hanna. And I haven't been particularly familiar with Ciara Hanna before this film, but she actually gives some A-list actresses a run for their money, but... She was briefly on The Bold and the Beautiful, of which I didn't know because I don't watch daytime TV. She was also in a short-lived Power Rangers spinoff called Power Rangers Megaforce, where she played actually the yellow uh, Megaforce Ranger named Gia Moran. And she was also on one episode of Sam and Cat, which was a show on Nickelodeon, which starred... Ariana Grande before she became uh, the superstar that she is today. So she's had some movie and TV show um, spots here and there. But yeah, I'm not familiar with James Maslow or Ciara Hanna before watching this film. And my guess is I'll probably see them in a film or a TV show here and there. Actually, the only person I knew who acted in this film was Taylor Hicks, who actually makes a cameo in this movie as himself. But he's actually singing country music at the 15-year high school reunion, um, which is very odd to me because Taylor Hicks, for those of you who forgot, was the winner of season five of American Idol. And Taylor Hicks's thing was singing soul music. He was a white guy with gray hair who sang soul music, and he talked about being on the Soul Patrol, 
which is a little bit cringy to think about uh, 15 or 16 years later, but it was a persona that worked for him. And it's kind of surprising to see him singing country music in this, but it's not too bad. I mean, he could sing really well, but stars fell in Alabama is quite predictable. You have this very good looking, uh, agent who's only uh, 33 and yet has made a name for himself in Hollywood, which is very impressive. Although even Hollywood looks uh, cleaner in this movie than it probably is. And you know that he and this starlet are going back under false pretenses. They both know it's under false pretenses, but you know, they're two good looking people and you know how the story is going to go. You know, they're going to, fall for one another. There's really no surprise there. And there's especially even less of a surprise when there is a rock star by the name of Zane Thomas, who's played by Zebedee Rowe, who is uh, Madison's ex-boyfriend who still holds a candle for her, even though uh, he is quite um, a cad. So... I I haven't seen uh, Zebedee Rowe in any other movies. He's another guy like James Maslow or um, the other actress I just mentioned. He's been in other movies and TV shows, but nothing big. But he does have a relatively unconvincing British accent that keeps dropping in this film. And I guess he's supposed to be like Russell Brand's character in Forgetting Sarah Marshall or uh, any other... um, better quality romantic comedy that undoubtedly inspired this one. But there's really not a lot to say about this film. I I found myself actually checking my remote control to see how many minutes were left in this hour and a half movie. And when I'm doing that, I'm really not enjoying this film as it is. It's not terrible, but it's very polished and it's very, Predictable. I will say, however, that some of the um, some of the characters who play uh, Bryce Dixon's old classmates are actually uh, very good and very convincing. There's one in particular who I liked, and I'm looking him up right now. Uh, the The actor's name is Johnny Mac, and he plays an old friend of Dixie's whose name is David Jackson and Johnny Mac is the token black guy in this film, but I liked him. He actually reminded me and I do think this, this is favorably of Anthony Anderson. And I do think that eventually if Anthony Anderson needs somebody to play his son or his long lost brother, then he should definitely try to contact Johnny Mac's agent. But I think what really worked for Uh, Johnny Mac in this film is Johnny Mac himself is a Birmingham, Alabama native. So I think he most convincingly played somebody who's from rural Alabama and the small town in this, in this movie is, has a population of 14,000, which in my book doesn't make it a small town. It might be a small town to somebody who lives in New York and California, but that must be with 14,000 people living in it. That must be one of the more populous towns in Alabama because Alabama is probably one of the least populated town or states, excuse me, in 
the United States. And considering that I come from a state where the fourth largest city, if you want to call it a city, has 20,000 people in it, a town with 14,000 people definitely dwarfs where I grew up uh, in a small town, not in the South, but <laughs> I, I'll go into that for a little bit um, uh, later. But Stars Fell in Alabama is one of those films you may not expect to see on Hulu or any other popular streaming platforms, but streaming platforms like Hulu and Netflix get on these kind of films anyway because they do need to make money and get some eyes who might not be motivated to see higher quality films like the people versus Billy holiday or the Irishman or any other award caliber film you could think of watching on either one of these platforms, but stars fallen Alabama is a strikeout in my book again, like thunder force. I didn't think it was a terrible movie, but I thought it was mind numbingly predictable. And it also seemed to present this clean cut world, unlike the world in which we live. And I'm not just talking about the world in which we live with COVID. I'm talking about uh, basically the, the kind of world you'd see on the Hallmark channel, maybe not so much lifetime anymore, but I was expecting a, a better film, especially with a title like stars fell on Alabama, which seems to be, which seems to suggest a, a higher quality film than you ultimately seen. But stars fell on Alabama is a predictable paint by numbers, romantic comedy has some great looking people in it, but it doesn't feel realistic. It feels contrived. It feels formulaic. And that's really all there is to say about stars fell on Alabama. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Have You Ever Seen Fireflies? This is a Turkish film that has an original title that I will not even try to repeat because I do not speak a word of Turkish. I, I believe this is the first uh, Turkish film I've ever seen, and it's directed by Andas Haznadaroglu. Thank God I, I pronounced that in one sitting. But he is a 50-year-old director who is a native of Turkey. He has directed uh, a lot of movies and TV shows up to this point. So have you ever seen Fireflies? I believe is his first film that Netflix has distributed. And it may not be his last because it is a, a nice film. It's a movie about a woman whose name is... Golsenren, who is a rebellious and irreverent wunderkind who navigates loneliness, love, and loss against the current of political turmoil and social change within her native Istanbul. And the actress who plays uh, Golsenren is named Esem Erkek, 
And she has been in several other movies and TV shows, but I won't get into any of them because if I haven't seen them, chances are, unless you're Turkish, as in from Turkey, you probably haven't seen them either. Uh, There's one film she was in called The Protector, which is actually a Netflix original. I believe that's also a film that is uh, Turkish. But I don't think she's been in any American films, and she might not ever be. But she made a decent uh, lead actress. She looks to be no older than 40, yet she plays the character of Gulson Wren from about the age of 18 to approximately the age of 70. And she comes from a wealthy family. And the reason she is a wunderkind is because according to the narrative framework here, which is somebody who's interviewing her in her old age and putting her video up on YouTube, she has a talent where she can multiply four digit numbers in her head instantly like that. And one of the things that really made this movie dubious is at the end, and I'm not giving everything away, but the person who was interviewing her as a narrative framework is, uh, intending on putting the video up on YouTube in the end he does, but that's all I'm going to tell you about the end of the film, because I want to keep with words on films rule about no spoilers. But he says that when he posted the video, it became the, one of the top 10 most viewed videos on YouTube, which I which I am very doubtful Uh, about in particular, not only because there are millions, if not billions of interviews on YouTube, but there are, but videos about people who can multiply numbers in their head, like a NASA engineer don't usually make the top five or the top 10, let alone make even a million uh, views on YouTube. I know because being the nerd that I am, I've seen some of these, uh, videos. Um, I, I like to watch them because I like math and I'm fascinated by people who can do complex arithmetic in their heads instantly without using a calculator or a pen and paper. But that's just me. I know more people are interested in watching a rat drag a slice of pizza across uh, a Brooklyn uh, brownstone than they are watching people do math. It might be a little sad, but that's kind of the way of the world. But besides that one talent, there really isn't anything in this film that makes the character of Gulson Wren all that special. And I did feel like this movie was very dialogue heavy. And normally I don't mind uh, dialogue heavy as long as it contributes to the story and it makes a point. But every adventure of Gulson Wren seems like an anecdote. And granted, there are some very interesting uh, parts of the movie. Like, for instance, she has an uncle who is a communist sympathizer, which doesn't bode uh, very well in uh, post-British rule uh, Turkey. And even though they're in Eastern Europe, Turkey, as well as Greece, were one of those countries that was very resistant to the communist party. So, of course, there were communist and Marxist in Turkey, but they paid the price for their political beliefs. I thought the scenes with him were probably the most fascinating. And there are Turkish officials or officers who periodically keep bringing him into prison. 
And it made me think, why is the movie focused on this woman as opposed to this uh, man who keeps getting arrested for his belief in communism? Wouldn't it be more interesting to see him in prison, to see him react to or have other prisoners or prison guards react to him based on his political beliefs being a young Marxist? I don't know, but he is kind of one of these characters that comes in and out of a movie, and you think the movie's going to be more about him, but it really isn't. In a lot of ways, with Golson Wren as the central character, the movie does resemble, in terms of story, uh, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, because Golson Wren and Elizabeth Bennet have quite a bit in common. They have domineering mothers as well as easygoing fathers with whom they get along a little bit better. They also buck tradition in terms of finding somebody to marry or they question the status quo. And I liked that part of it, but I also did not see the significance of the fireflies in this film, or maybe it was because a lot of the dialogue heavy anecdotes took away from the the titular fireflies in this movie. And I just didn't really get behind the metaphor of the fireflies. Of course you can tie something like fireflies into a parable or a metaphor about life, but the movie doesn't quite do that, or at least not in my opinion, or maybe it was because the movie was so dialogue heavy and in its native Turkish that I found myself reading the bottom of the screen the whole time, but it's a movie that didn't quite connect with me. And maybe, and I, I sometimes hate to do this when it comes to foreign films, but maybe if I switch the settings on Netflix to, instead of have it be in its native Turkish with English subtitles, I might actually have it dubbed in English without the subtitles. And maybe just maybe I like, I'd like the movie better, but I do think It is an original story. It has some very evident flaws, but I do think that people who are of Turkish descent, whether they're from Turkey or they have ancestors from Turkey who settled in America, might take a liking to this film more than I do. But I'm going to give Have You Ever Seen Fireflies the benefit of the doubt because among its strengths were the fact that S.M. Urkek, who played Golson Wren, is a very charming actress. And even though I thought that having a YouTube uh, personality interview her in her old age was a little cliche in terms of a narrative framework, I did like her in the movie. And I did think that the movie had a little bit of magic when it came to the scenes where she's literally surrounded by fireflies. But I give it a checkout, a marginal checkout, because maybe there's some magic in this movie that I'm missing. I do think it is very well shot. I think uh, the cinematographer did a good job filming this movie. I do think that the bit of Turkish history in the latter half of the 20th century with this woman in it had some moments of brilliance, but it didn't quite get to uh, the heart of what it could have been, but I still give it a marginal pass because I could see what it was doing. There were some very notable strengths amongst all the weaknesses of the film. And again, I can't fault this film 
too much for having too much dialogue, or maybe it was just the fact that I'm not fluent in Turkish, and maybe I just need to watch this film another way to appreciate it. But it had some magic. It just didn't have enough to make it a great film, in my opinion. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into what's coming up next. This is a spoken word uh, preview of movies that are coming out for the week of April 10th through April 16th, 2021. And there is one film that actually came out today. It premiered on... Netflix uh, today. It's a 2020 film that is somehow not a Netflix original, even though it's premiering on Netflix. And again, if you come to me and ask me why it is that some movies are Netflix originals and why some films, even those that come out in 2020 or 2021 aren't, I wouldn't be able to tell you. What I would tell you is that it probably has to do with contracts, but This movie is actually one I wish I could have reviewed for you. It's one called The Stand-In. It came out Saturday, August 10th, 2020, excuse me, Saturday, April 10th, 2021. And it stars Drew Barrymore as a difficult comedic actress, as well as a more humble woman who serves as her stand-in. And Drew Barrymore plays someone who's very volatile on the set and goes into um, a a self-imposed exile when her career flops because of an embarrassing viral video. That's all I know about the movie. And I actually thought that Drew Barrymore was done with movies, or I assumed she was, based on the fact that, for one, she has a TV series on Netflix, which is called Santa Clara Diet, which is uh, a dark comedy. And she also has a syndicated talk show called The Drew Barrymore Show. I bet it took a long time for them to come up with that name. And actually, I have a cousin who's a writer for that show, interestingly enough. And I don't know how well The Drew Barrymore Show is doing in terms of ratings or if it's going to come back after a year. But my guess is Drew Barrymore being the delightful person that she is, is probably going to do that show for quite some time. And since Ellen DeGeneres, because of some scandals on her show, is kind of seems to be on her way out, uh, it looks like Drew Barrymore is on TV to stay. But then again, I could be wrong, especially considering how little TV I watch. But The Stand-In is a movie that I will see, and I will re- review it for you eventually. 
The only thing is, and I should mention this right now, I am not going to be doing my show next week. I'm going to be taking the weekend off, and I'm going to explain this at the very end of the show, but I have something to do that Saturday morning, so I'm not going to be doing a show next week. Very sorry to say that, but I will be back in two weeks. So I'm going to have to refrain from saying I will see this movie and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. On Sunday, April 11th, I think this is a movie that could be considered a documentary. It's called Diana, the interview that shook the world. Now, I don't know if this is Diana as in Princess Diana or it's um, any other famous Diana like Diana Ross. But it oh, it's, it's actually about Princess Diana. And it is one of the most memorable moments in TV history. Princess Diana candidly opens up about her marriage to Prince Charles and her life as a member of the royal family. And I do have to say this about uh, the royal family. Prince Charles made a terrible mistake divorcing uh, Princess Diana, but it is what it is, I guess. But uh, this is labeled a documentary. It's rated TVG, which kind of surprises me because... The scandal that occurred between Princess Diana and Prince Charles in the last few years of their marriage was not particularly G-rated. Now, I can't see who actually interviewed um, Princess Diana for this special about which they're talking. I do remember uh, an interview with Princess Diana with Martin Bashir, who's a controversial uh, journalist himself. But that looks like an interesting documentary. And even though I couldn't care less about the royal family, I do think that Diana is a fascinating uh, subject. And I do want to see exactly how that shook the world. Because there are things that, that happen with the royal family, like the recent Oprah interview with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle that presumably shook the world. And I do think that... A lot of the things that Meghan Markle said were shocking. But again, I wouldn't exactly say that I'm invested in the royal family. I have very contradictory feelings about this. But I will see this. Whether or not I'm going to review this um, documentary in two weeks, I don't exactly know. But I will put it on my list of movies to eventually review. On Monday, April 12th, there is a film premiere of a movie called New Gods Nezha Reborn. And I don't know anything about New Gods other than um, Nezra Reborn sounds like a sequel. But it's a story that happens after over 2,000 years when Nezha conquered the Dragon King in the novel Faishan Yanyi. A normal young delivery man, Li Youngjang, though coming from the slum areas, is living a satisfying life and enjoying motor racing in his spare time. But when the arrogant, wealthy son of Boss D, the Dragon King, beats him down, takes away his beloved motor, and even wounds his innocent orphan sister, his deep anger turns into a blast of truth fire. The true identity Nesha is revealed. Nesha, the god of rebel which is a great god to be, violent and egocentric, empowers Yun Zhang, but the newly obtained uncontrollable power brings new harm to Yun Zhang's family and friends. 
And that's all I'm going to read. That's a very long uh, plot synopsis. But this movie is, I believe, Chinese because the director is Yi uh, Zhao. If it's not Chinese, it's probably uh, uh, Taiwanese. But it looks like a movie with incredible special effects. It will be premiering on Netflix on Monday, April 12th. Will I see this movie? Maybe. But I will let you know when I come back in two weeks. On Wednesday, April 14th, there are several uh, uh, shows premiering, but there is there are two films. One of them is called The Soul, which is a Netflix original. And I've been saying so many uh, Chinese titles and Korean titles. Soul is basically, as in your soul, the one you have. And this is actually... It looks, ironically, like a foreign film, and this one being a Korean film. So, not Seoul is in the country in South Korea, but let me just briefly uh, summarize this. Wang Shikong, uh, chairman of the famous group, what group, I don't know, died tragically at home. The prosecutor, Liang Wengchao, and his wife, criminal, criminal police A. Bao, Learned during the investigation, oh God, this is way too much. <laughs> this is a very, very lengthy um, process, but if, you, if you'd like me to read it, I can continue. But I, of course, this is pre-recorded, so I can't exactly take votes from the audience, or at least I have 16 minutes left in the show, so I can't uh, be like TRL and take requests. But man, th- this sounds like a movie with a lot of characters, So I'm not going to get into exactly what the film is about, but I can tell you that the soul means the soul is in the soul you possess um, within yourself, not the city in South Korea, but ironically enough, it is a South Korean film, which is a Netflix original. It's premiering on April 14th, so if you didn't know about it before, you're welcome. And that is a film, not a documentary. There is another Netflix original that is a documentary, and it is called Why Did You Kill Me? Which actually sounds more like a feature film than it does a documentary, because who's asking why did you kill me, and why are they asking that, and how are they getting the message across to the living? But this uh, documentary, Why Did You Kill Me?, details the line between justice and revenge and how it blurs when a devastated family uses social media to track down the people who killed 24-year-old Crystal Theobald. There has been a documentary like this on Hulu, and I can't remember what the documentary is, but that was a movie that for a couple of weeks definitely entranced and fascinated the people who watched it. And I would be... I'm very excited to watch this documentary. I won't review it on next week's show because there won't be a show next week, but I will put it on my list and eventually review it for you. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. 
there's so much original content coming out on Netflix. It's unreal. And other streaming platforms like Hulu, Disney Plus, and Paramount Plus are just catching up. But they've been out not quite as long as Netflix. Netflix is definitely the first and so far the best. But that might... That may not last forever. On Thursday, April 15th, there's a Netflix original film that's called Ride or Die, which sounds like one of those movies like The Fast and the Furious. This is also a foreign film. It looks like it comes from Japan. And this is one about a woman named Ray, R-E-I, who helps the woman she's been in love with for years escape her abusive husband. While on the run, their feelings for each other catch fire. This sounds quite a bit like Thelma and Louise. Not exactly like Thelma and Louise, but very similar to it in theme. It's just, I don't think there was... Anyway, uh, Ride or Die sounds actually a lot deeper than a Fast and Furious film. And that is a movie that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think eventually. Obviously not uh, next week. But I'll let you know either way. So there are several films that are premiering on Netflix on Friday, April 16th. One of them is called Arlo the Alligator Boy, which sounds like a kid's film. Let's see what it is. Uh, And I'm researching as as I'm speaking. I'm trying not to have too much dead air. This is indeed an animated film. And it's about a young humanoid alligator who travels to the big city in hopes of reuniting with his estranged father, meeting a colorful cast of characters along the way. That prepositional, or that um, part of the sentence in the end, uh, meeting a colorful cast of characters along the way, is quite cliche, but it looks to have an animation style very similar to Rick and Morty. It's 2D with some... 3D uh, elements. I almost said elephants. (laughs) Shows you where my mind is. But Arlo the Alligator Boy looks like a fun film. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to be as a film, but I'll see it and I'll let you know what I think eventually. Another original film that's going to be premiering on Netflix is one that's called Ajib Dastans, which is obviously uh, a foreign film. Unless it is somebody's name, but let's see. It's a 2021 film. It is a Netflix original, and it looks to be an Indian film. And it's actually an anthology film. It has four shorts exploring the surprising ways in which unexpected catalysts inflame the uncomfortable emotions simmering under fractured relationships. There's a lot there, but there are Indian directors who are directing each short within this anthology. This will be a film that I might see, but I don't know uh, if I'm going to eventually see it. But if you're interested in seeing it, Ajib Dastans is going to be premiering on Friday, April 16th, 2021. Another film is going to be premiering on Netflix, which is a Netflix original, is one that is called Into the Beat. And let me just... Look this one up right now. Into the Beat is a film that looks to be an American film. I could be wrong about that. But it stars Alexandra Pfeiffer and Yelani Marshner. 
And it does not have a plot right now, but my guess is, judging from the poster of the film, that it is a dance movie because it's called Into the Beat and it looks like the two people in the movie are, or at least on the poster, are dancing or are about to dance. I could go into more details about what they look like, but you kind of get the idea. So Into the Beat will be premiering on Netflix on Friday, April 16th, 2021. And that just about does it for Netflix originals that are going to be premiering on Friday, April 16th. There are some other movies that are not Netflix originals that will be making an appearance on Netflix. One of them is called Crimson Peak, and that is not a Netflix original. Uh, I've exhausted the list of Netflix original films that are going to be premiering, but Crimson Peak is a movie I actually have seen. It's just I've kind of forgotten about it. It's directed by Guillermo del Toro, and it stars Mia Wasikowska from Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, Jessica Chastain, and Tom Hiddleston. So it has a really good cast. It is a particularly scary movie, and Guillermo del Toro not only directed it, but he also wrote it before his Academy Award winning The Shape of Water, which came out two years uh, later. But Yeah, Crimson Peak is a movie that has stunning visuals, as you might expect from a Guillermo del Toro film. But to be honest, I actually kind of forgot uh, some parts of the movie, and I I actually had to look it up for uh, this segment. Another film that's going to be appearing on Netflix besides Crimson Peak that's not a uh, Netflix original is a movie that's called Rush, which came out in... 2013 stars Daniel Bruhl and Chris Hemsworth and Olivia Wilde. And it's about the merciless 1970s rivalry between Formula One rivals James Hunt and Nikki Lauda. That's a movie that came out in 2013 and I didn't see it because I I didn't um, host the show at the time. I've been hosting this show since 2014. But I might actually give Rush a look. I won't be reviewing it on this show because I only or mostly review new films. I do make a few exceptions, but it's usually if it's an old film that has a wide release. Like, for instance, in 2018 when I reviewed Schindler's List because that was my first time seeing Schindler's List on the big screen. And Steven Spielberg put it out for his 25th anniversary and I'm so glad he did because it was amazing seeing that on the big screen. Just doing a little um, <laughs> uh, digression here, but yeah. If you get the chance to see Schindler's List, don't necessarily settle for watching it on DVD, but to get the whole experience, you got to see it in the theaters. But then again, we're in the pandemic, so <laughs> see it in the theaters, A, when it comes out in theaters, and B when it's safe to go to theaters again, when you've had your COVID vaccine shots. That's a public service announcement from your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Anyway, there's another film that's coming out on Netflix on Friday, April 16th. Again, it's not an original, but it's called Synchronic. And this is a film I have actually not seen or heard of. It stars Anthony Mackie, who's a great actor, And Jamie Dornan, who is not, or at least he has not convinced me that he's a good actor. But the movie is about 
Two New Orleans pandemics whose lives are ripped apart after they encounter a series of horrific deaths linked to a designer drug with bizarre otherworldly effects. That bizarre otherworldly effects ending of a sentence is one I've seen in, in several other movie synopses before, but I'd be willing to give this movie a shot. I think Anthony Mackie is a great actor. I've liked him ever since I saw him in the messy, uneven, but not forgettable Spike Lee film, She Hate Me. And I've seen him in movies like Half Nelson and Million Dollar Baby and several of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films, and he has not failed to disappoint me as an actor yet. I cannot say the same for Jamie Dornan, who played Christian Grey and had as much chemistry with Dakota Johnson in that movie as two mannequin dolls. And I've seen Jamie Dornan in a couple of other films, including the remake of Robin Hood with Taron Egerton and Jamie Foxx. He wasn't particularly good in that film either. But I still believe in second, third, fourth chances If somebody's in a new movie, I'm not going to immediately dismiss them. Even if I see Pauly Shore in a new movie, I'm not going to dismiss him either because maybe, just maybe, he'll be good in the film. But Synchronic will be making an appearance on Netflix on April 16th. It's going to be its premiere on Netflix, but it is not a Netflix original. And the final film that is going to be appearing on Netflix but is not a Netflix original, is a movie called The Zookeeper's Wife, which is based on a best-selling novel of the same name. And this movie came out in 2017, but interestingly enough, I did not actually get around to seeing it. It stars Jessica Chastain as the titular Zookeeper's Wife. It also stars Johan Heldenberg and Daniel Bruhl. And it's about a keeper of the Warsaw Zoo, or two keepers, Antonina and Jan Zabinski, who must save hundreds of people and animals during the Nazi invasion in World War II Poland. It's kind of interesting that they would save animals in addition to people, because Hitler, for all his atrocities and inexcusable uh, corruption, actually loved animals. So I don't know why Nazi soldiers would kill animals despite Hitler's love for animals at the time. But in any event, it it looks like a movie that was Oscar bait, although it was nominated for absolutely zero Oscars. And Jessica Chastain should have won an Academy Award by now. She should have won for Zero Dark Thirty, but unfortunately that wasn't the case with her, but she does, she will eventually win an Academy Award unless she dies tomorrow, which hopefully doesn't happen. But The Zookeeper's Wife is a movie that didn't make a big splash uh, critically or commercially, but if you want to check it out, it is on or will be premiering on Netflix on Friday, April 16th. Let me see before I go if there are any other movies that are going to be premiering on other platforms to which I subscribe, starting with uh, Disney+. Plus. There's actually nothing that's going to be... There, there are no movies that are going to be premiering 
on Disney Plus on Friday, April 16th. There are going to be some documentaries. There are going to be some movies that are making an appearance on Disney Plus. There are going to be some series that are going to be premiering, including one called Big Shot, which stars John Stamos. But no movies. Not this coming Friday, unfortunately. On HBO Max, let's see. April 16th, nothing is going to be premiering on uh, HBO Max. However... There is a documentary that's going to be premiering on Tuesday, April 13th, that is called Our Towns. This is an HBO original. Let me see what I can find with this documentary, if I can find anything. And let's see. It's from the Academy Award-nominated team of Stephen Asher and Janine Jordan, And it's a documentary that paints a remarkable picture of America and how the rise of civil and economic reinvention is transforming small cities and towns across the country. That's all the synopsis is going to tell me, but this is a movie I will see. I may not review it for you next week, but I will eventually review it for you. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.